Hi guys and welcome back to SLT time. This is episode seven, eight, I can't remember actually. Right? Episode two of season oh, two. Oh, episode two of season two. Wow, we've been going on yeah. for a few months now. Like honestly, where has time gone? Um, we want to continue thanking everybody for engaging with us and tweeting us, responding to us and having really, really, really interesting discussions online through all our social media. So today um, our topic is uh, communication culture and we're really excited because we've got a really interesting and amazing panel um, of speakers today. Um, so from your SLT time host, it's me, Ilya and Mariam and our panelists today are... Hi, my name's Sean Pert. I am uh, an advisor on bilingualism for the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. Um, and I also do work with trans people in Greater Manchester. And obviously we have a lot of um, uh, diversity in Manchester in terms of uh, communities around the Greater Manchester area. Yeah, hello, my name is Elizabeth Peterson and I'm a, I'm a linguist. And I'm based out of Helsinki. I'm at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Hi, I'm Marion. Uh, I'm a speech and language pathologist and I work in a hospital in Qatar in the Middle East. I just love how you get more diverse. <laughs> oh, I'm a pathologist now. All I'm going to say is all over the world, international panel. Is Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thanks again for uh, agreeing to me in today's episode. Um, hopefully it'll be really informative for our viewers. Yeah, so, thank you for the invitation. No problem. <laughs> so, actually, Elizabeth didn't mention she was being a bit humble in her introduction, but she's also an author. Uh, this is how we found oh, yes. her, actually. So maybe, yeah. Here's the book. It's right in front of me. Oh, I've got it here as well. <laughs> oh, look at that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so Elizabeth's book is called um, Making Sense of Bad English. Um, and switching bad English is in quotes. That's very important. Bad English, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and it's... Um, sociolinguistic perspective um, of like English speaking and um, lots of lots of topics without spoiling. Okay, so as I mentioned, today's topic is communication culture. So what does that mean? We've spoken in past episodes about cultural competence, the importance of having some level of consideration about your patients or students' cultural background when you're setting goals or in your intervention plans and also how to adapt assessments and formalized frameworks um, so that they're relevant, they're dynamic, and that you're getting the most um, from the people that you're working with if they're from a black and ethnic minority background. Um, but today we wanna kind of think why, like what is the extent and cause of this consideration that we have to have? So how are our experiences, our culture, and our multilingualism actually impacting our communication and interaction style? And also, uh, we hope to kind of explore at the end, why is or isn't this important to consider when working clinically as a speech and language therapist? Um, so Mariam is going to give um, a bit of context about this topic. Um, so to begin with, I thought it would be good to refer back to the term culture and what this means essentially. So um, the term culture refers to the complex collection of knowledge, language, language rules, rituals, habits, beliefs and customs that link and give a common identity to a particular group of people. And it's important to note that this is also at a specific point in time. So it's something that's always evolving. Um, and whilst I was researching this topic, I came across um, high context cultures versus low context cultures. So this initially came from um, anthropologist Edward Hall, um, who defines intercultural communication as a form of communication that shares information across different cultures and social groups. And one way or one framework for approaching this is using the terms high context and low context. Um, so high context essentially uh, refers to cultures that rely heavily on nonverbal communication. Uh, so they use elements such as closeness of their relationship, strict social hierarchies and deep cultural knowledge to convey meaning. And low context cultures depend largely on the words themselves. Um, so communication tends to be more direct, relationships, relationships tend to begin and end quickly, and the hierarchies are a little bit more relaxed. Um, so just to give some more um, input in that as well, some of the points that I found interesting. So 
um, high context cultures in conversation people are expected to speak one after another in an orderly and linear fashion um, and nonverbal elements like voice and voice tones sorry um, gestures facial expression um, are really significant um, verbal messages tend to be indirect and communication is seen as an art form or way of engaging someone and I thought that's a really good example um, disagreements is also, also tends to be personalized and um, a person is tends to be sensitive to conflict expressing someone else's nonverbal communication um, so picking up on those nonverbals a lot more uh, physical space uh, is considered more communal so they tend to stand very close to each other um, and verbal messages are also more indirect uh, so often talk around the point um, and use a lot of embellishments to convey meaning. Um, and another thing that I thought was really interesting as well was an individual's identity is usually rooted in groups, so that's the family, the culture that they're in, the workplace, um, and they build really slow and depend on trust. Um, and some countries that are referred as high context include um, Japan, Greece, and some Arab nations, um, whereas low context, context um, cultures communication tends to be more linear and precise um, and words are a lot more highly valued uh, so physical space is considered privately owned as well and verbal messages are tend to be explicit and direct and um, non-verbal elements might not be as significant um, and um, some countries um, that fall under that is countries like the united states germany um, as examples. Um, but I think it's also sort of important to know after I said all of that, <laughs> that um, some countries might form might fall in the middle of higher context and no context. Um, and then also thinking about um, some cultures may communicate differently depending on the setting. So when you're at home with family, you have a high level of shared experiences, so you might require less words, so you might fall into um, the low the high context elements in that sense. Um, so I thought some of that description was really interesting. I think it's the first time that I thought about it in that sense and sort of comparing um, Algerian culture and the way that I speak with my parents or the way that I speak at work or um, even going to Algerian holiday. Um, it really made me think of it, of it in that context and I think it really opened my eyes to the difference in communication styles. Um, so to begin with, I just thought we could have a think about, um, from our experience, if we see any parallels within our own cultures um, and what does it mean to us living in the countries that we're living in. When you were reading that list of high cultures, I think it was, and then at the end you were like, oh, Arab nations. I was like, yeah, I was exactly thinking that my Arab family, were, uh, all of those things that you were writing, like that's so familiar and relatable. It's really interesting because I'm mixed race and the other half of my family I would consider quite low context with those. Mm. So I'm actually very different when I'm with that side of the family and when I'm in that side of the family, my whole interaction style changes. Um, but that's really interesting to know. I'm just thinking in a speech therapy hat on, like when the students that I see at school, they're, in a they're probably using a different context with me than they would out in the community or with their families and so you know when we're thinking about holistic care and how can we generalize outside of school and classrooms how are we able to account for all these different interaction styles it's so complex but it was funny that when you were reading that list I was like yeah yeah absolutely like that's so relatable definitely yeah I think we have just to jump in there really reminds yeah. me of my clinical practice because um when I'm working with children with um, speech language disorders, they, um, they're moving, as, as you say, they, they're often quite used to um, white British culture because they experience it in school and they're learning this um, cultural exchange. And one of the big messages is that only English is acceptable. So I remember the first time, because I would greet, I would always learn a greeting for somebody um, and I would to try and give them the message that this is going to be a bilingual environment and my um, clinic rooms often have toys that the kids recognize so lots of Pakistan heritage families in my area so we would have a divan we'd have all the kind of cooking implements 
I remember the first time I said, <laughs> I said a sentence in home language to a child, they just laughed and laughed <laughs> and laughed because I'd broken that rule that, mm. that English was expected in this environment. And they were just so uh, different after that, that they realized that they could, um, you know, that, that they could use all of their language experience. And I think that is something that lots of therapists say to me. They say, well, oh, he's dominant in English because he'll only use English. And I'm going, my first question is always, where are you seeing him? Yeah. Because if you see that child at home or if you see them with the extended family in attendance and you just let people kind of carry on their, their day, really, you'll hear far more language or far more examples of the child's language than if we do what we always do, which is, you're going to look at a book and we're deciding how to run this session. And that's a culture in itself. The, the idea that we are the experts and we are in charge of running the session. It's um, a real presumption of power and authority. But people just don't recognise that, you know. And actually our job is to find out how this child can communicate in a very naturalistic way. And yet we don't allow that to happen. We impose this white Western culture and we're not even aware of it because we're so used to, even if you're bicultural, you're kind of indoctrinated into it through school. Um, and I think that's, it's almost like um, white British people need to become aware that it's, it is a culture. It's, it's not the only way of being. Definitely. Yeah. And I think we touched upon that as well before that, um, that white culture is a thing and it exists. And, I think it becomes, like you said, you don't really notice that you're um, necessarily behaving in a different way. You sort of just do it naturally. And I don't think I've noticed that really until actually researching this episode and thinking about how I communicate differently in different settings. We could learn um, so much from children because they're geniuses at this. Because like Sean said, they haven't been indoctrinated into this kind of these expected ways of being and they're, they're so smart at just reading a situation and knowing exactly what to do. I wish it could be the other way around and that we could learn from them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's interesting that you said about um, that you learn a greeting because I think, I think me and Mariam spoke about this actually before that um, I still find it really awkward using my own greeting with a child that would have the same because I've been sort of indoctrinated into that uh, I'm the therapist and this is the culture that I should be like showing and I feel really uncomfortable still like um you know using that sort of greeting and terminology that would use religiously when I know that the student is obviously of a shared experience to me but even I sort of have put that wall up because that's not considered the professional culture and it's just so interesting that um you're, you're able to break that wall and I think that's something that I'm definitely definitely trying to do more in practice now. Because you have to build well, rapport too. So mm -hmm. I think it's it's about saying as well, it, the, think about the language we use. Um, I hear so many people say I use an interpreter and I go oh I don't, I work with an interpreter or a alongside <laughs> interpreter because I'm the one that doesn't have this knowledge. I'm the one that's that that is um, not part of this culture. I need I need the guidance, mm -hmm. not these people in front of me, not these clients. And I think mm -hmm. um, the fact is, I will probably mangle some of the production. I've got IPA script on my side, so I can try and get it quite good. And um, I'm very proud that when I went on community radio, someone phoned in and said, I don't believe that's a white man because he's saying this so accurately. And I thought, yes, I'm really good at this. <laughs> but I think that the, the interesting thing is when, um, when I say these things to children, what I say to them is I might get it wrong. And it's okay for you to get things wrong. Because I think the fact is these are clients that have communication issues. So they might have language impairment, they might have speech disorder, and they kind of learn very quickly that their communication isn't adequate and put onto that these power relationships. You get very silent children in these situations. Whereas if you make if you make them welcome in terms of the full cultural background, then I think you know you get you get that full interaction style and it really does break the ice and it makes me really sad that it's not professional because I've done this for, for for decades and I think it's just you know 
I get away with it by being eccentric. So maybe you need to start wearing a bow tie or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'll do that. I, I'll take that. <laughs> I think um, I think it's really interesting uh, what you said, Sean, about um, us not being aware of our own cultural sort of biases or what we um, impose on a child during a session or maybe even a parent. I think for me, I've been in Qatar since February and I always thought, you know, I know Arabs, you know, I grew up in London, I, I'm culturally competent. <laughs> and then I got such a wake-up call and it's been such a humbling experience because it's it's not the same. You know, even I was really happy. I, I, I had a Somali patient coming in and I thought, I'm Somali, I'm going to communicate in the mother tongue and it's going to be fine. And they never, they didn't speak Somali, they spoke Arabic. And it was just a completely different culture as well. Um, so I, I realized that I have this perception anyway of what an Arab is or there's a huge expat community. So what anyone from any background is. And coming from London, I think, you know, I'm really well prepared for that. But the context is completely different. And so the people are completely different. And the communication style is completely different. And I'm realizing I'm way more British than I thought I was. <laughs> like way more British because I've been taken out of uh, the UK. And I'm, I'm realizing even the way that I speak sometimes, British people don't like to say something is bad. We prefer to just say, oh, it's not quite right. Or um, it's not what I expected. Or well, something like that's lovely. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people find that incredibly confusing. They're like, just tell me what it is. Is it good or is it bad? And we're like, oh, it's 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 not quite there yet. You know, it's it's quite annoying sometimes for some of the people. So it's been really interesting to reflect on my communication style and how it's perceived by others. And it's been really eye-opening for me. I think that's really interesting. And I think two points you've picked up on there, I really recognize. Um, even in uh, monolingual English uh, reporting, we say to parents, oh, this child's struggling with three word level or he's mm. struggling, he's not struggling at all. He's, he just can't do it. Or yeah. he, he doesn't struggle with a speech sound. He just, he fronts with no effort at all. You know, it's just, it just happens. Yeah. <laughs> we apologize for it and make it sound not as bad as it really is. And the second thing I wanted to say from your observation there was that it's not, it's not even your national identity. It's not even your kind of cultural identity. Language, the way that you use language transmits all this cultural information. And I've often heard people say that language is the transmission of culture. And I think, that's what you're describing really and as soon as you have more than one language in your brain you have these interactions of cultural self and you're not even aware yeah. of it which is so fascinating um yeah. Elizabeth, i'd love to hear um your views in terms of what is the sort of sociolinguistic aspect over that because we're looking at very sort of clinical um theory and sort of ingrained linguistic teaching that we have I think from our practice um, and why I think your view would be so 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 valuable is because you're looking really really at the broader picture and can see things that maybe maybe we overanalyze as speech therapists or, or we miss because we're so stuck in our frameworks and mindset. Yeah but maybe that's actually an easier way to approach this because when I'm hearing the other people talking and of course I'm an immigrant in Finland I've been here for 15 years but I'm originally from the U.S. so I'm listening to Marianne and thinking yeah 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 so and I wonder if Marianne can relate to this that when you're an immigrant in a different place you get this amplified version of what they want you to be right as American or as British so I find myself in these weird interactions here in Finland, and by the way, looking at the list here of high context and low context, I'm sort of like, Ooh, where's Finland? Yeah. Physical, physical distance tends to be very well valued here and privacy, but they don't talk much. This is a place where silence is really, really comfortable. So um, sometimes I find that I'm just the chatty American complimenting people on whatever they're wearing, just because that's what's expected of me. So that's not really a scientific answer to what you were saying, but it's very personal, it seems somehow. I've also found um, myself challenged in like what I 
think a child is as well in yeah. uh, different cultures. So I think some of the kids that I've worked with, like if you think, okay, I'm going to see an eight-year-old, you have a perception of an eight-year-old in your mind that's very much being in the UK, what an eight-year-old is. Yeah. Um, and then this like little kid comes in that looks like a mini adult and he's very, you know, very confident, I think. You know, I can't talk to you the, the way that I was preparing to talk to you. So I so interesting. Yeah. I've had some shocks that way too because this is such a private culture and it starts very early on. So especially when I first moved to Finland, I was so shocked to see eight, nine-year-old children on public transportation by themselves in Helsinki. And I'm like, oh, should I tell somebody, where's this child's mother? Is he okay? But here it's just perfectly normal for really small children to walk through the city. And now I think, well, isn't that wonderful that people just leave them be? Mm. But it took me a long, long time to get used to that. So yeah, and I think thinking of being a child is such an interesting observation. Yeah, and thinking of roles of children and within families as well. I thought something in terms of culture and family is the roles within like a nuclear family and then the roles within an extended family as well. And this is something that has come on before. So responsibilities that siblings might take within therapy is that seen as some somewhat the norm in some cultures and not the rest um, or as well um, responsibilities between parents as well who, who's, who's seen as the main carer for the child I was thinking I was sort of reflecting back to my clinical work and I do tend to work a lot more with mums and I, I do say oh I'm going to call mum I'm like why why am I saying mum like it could be dad that's going to take the responsibility of speech therapy but it's just you know again my bias coming in there and taking those assumptions um and then sort of for me as well in my culture it's the norm for me to help my siblings out i remember when um, my brother used to go swimming and i was in secondary school i used to take him to swimming lessons um and that was seen as okay but and then um working as well as a speech therapist i've heard other therapists comments on siblings doing the therapy work and then that, that might not be appropriate um so it'll be interesting to see your views on that as well and, and as well be interesting to see whether in Finland or in Qatar as well that's more of a norm than it would be in the UK or Western countries. Is that if, if, I, if we saw an eight-year-old bring themselves to therapy here yeah. <laughs> filing safeguarding claims like. <laughs> I think it's a really good point because I um, it, when you're taking a, a case history I take a language case history as well and I remember health visitors, it's a really good example, the health visitor saying to me, oh, this is a really clear case, Sean, because um, the little boy will speak English because I've spoken to mum, she's um, she's a really modern mum, she works, she's got amazing English, she's kind of third generation. And when it got down to it, I said, who looks after this little boy in the daytime? And it was Gran, it was Gran, it wasn't the, the mum and it was one of the siblings and actually they mostly spoke home language because Gran of course wanted to speak home language yeah. and um, you also get the more older siblings that you have the more likely a child is to speak English because they have these interaction roles and I think um, you know when we do and, and the thing you picked upon gender is really key because uh, I in my role at university, I had many a male student say to me, what am I doing wrong? And all these clinical educators saying, you have to speak essentially motherese to, and, and be like a children's presenter. Otherwise you're not being a good therapist, you know? So if you don't go, hi, how are you? And all this kind of big stuff. <laughs> so I, I think that's, you know, culturally speech therapy has a culture and it's yeah. a very, ex it's very kind of, uh, gendered really so I think you're right it really has massive impacts in all sorts of aspects of our clinical practice. It's interesting as well um, what you're saying about the so I think what Miriam said about um, talking to mums and just assuming that um, the mum is going to be the main person doing therapy um, here I found uh, it's been quite nice actually to have a lot of dads show up to therapy sessions and coming with the mom as well and being really involved and asking loads of questions and it it's 
I had to catch myself in the early like stages. I was directing all of my sort of non-verbal communication to mum automatically and just ignoring dad. And I, I had to correct that. I realized actually they're just as involved and he's really, you know, engaged. And there's no reason for me to be assuming that the mum is going to be um, the main carer. And also a lot of people here have nannies as well. So that's another thing to consider. Like a lot of these children are spending a lot of time with um, domestic workers. So you also have to direct some of your um, communication to the nanny. But then sometimes there's a little bit of awkwardness where you know the mum might feel like you know I'm the mum don't don't direct that communication at the nanny so there's a lot of things to navigate there in terms of um, relationships and responsibilities um, but I, I think it is interesting we have to always be reflective as clinicians that we're not assuming anything um, about what's going on at home and and that we're giving everyone equal opportunity to be a part of this child's therapy Definitely. We also spoke um, in a previous episode um, about our perceptions as healthcare workers as well, um, about families when they walk in. So if they're um, EAL speakers or if we have to use um, an interpreter to communicate with the family, um, there is this bias of they're not going to engage with therapy, they're not going to get much out of it, it's going to be difficult to work with them, um, you know, um, the effort that we have to put in to adapt our plan so that this family can access it, getting it translated, all that kind of stuff. Most people who have come on to speak have said that in their places, in their settings, that effort is not usually made. Um, a lot of families are written off because of the fact that making them access our therapy is more is a lot more work. Um, and the thing is, is that actually... I actually don't think it's that much work. Like, um, lots of services have options to just get things translated or to, um, you know, have, they have loads of flyers which have already been translated out um, in social media and all these um, websites. Everything's already translated into all these amazing um, advice for parent sheets and things like that. But um, nobody's kind of utilizing those resources, which is kind of upsetting because we've, autom or we've automatically made a bias that, it's just so much, it's too much effort and they're not going to engage with it. Actually, like Mariam was saying, you know, these people came from countries as lawyers and doctors and, and you know, they migrated here and were treated, they're treated as, you know, lower class citizens, uneducated, just because they're not speaking English in therapy session. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. I think as well, I, you know, I came across a family with a child with speech sound disorder and she'd been told by her teacher the, of a daughter that it was because we we see children in school earlier than in her country and this woman was a lawyer in her own country and her sister was a paediatrician but she was just dismissed because she was just an immigrant and also the fact that these days we have I've had an entire career adapting and changing materials and working alongside interpreters. And now it's really easy. You, you pick up your mobile phone and you, you, you know, you say to parents, use your mobile phone and record what the interpreter is saying. So you can, the whole family can listen to it at home. You can, you can, you know, people can video their own children. You don't need consent forms to video your own child, you know, and you can, you can get people, because a lot of a lot of money is wasted, particularly on um, in cultures where there is maybe a written form. So I know I work with Mapri families where there's no written form, and a lot of, of women have been denied education because of the misogyny in their own society or lack of um, uh, access to education. So I, I think it's never been easier, and. I, I wrote the guidelines uh, for children around bilingualism and it says that it's not optional to not involve an interpreter. It's not optional to work in, in just English. So we really need to get that message out that um, the Royal College and the evidence base shows that we get better outcomes for everyone. And actually what goes to the heart of that is do you value home language? Do you value multiculturalism? And if people are dismissive, that is a form of kind of passive 
uh, racism and, and it really enrages me because um, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I, I, I don't think it's passive. I mean, I agree with so much with everything you say, but it's not even passive racism. It's mm. just racism. Yeah. How can you value a child if you don't value what is closest and dearest to that child's heart? How can you give that child access to a wider community and a different, a different kind of culture by shutting down what's the most important in their life? It's just a recipe for failure. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Mm, you said it very well. I just agree with you. <laughs> um, so I have a question here as well. Um, so we've spoken a lot about the different cultures and different interaction styles um, that we've all experienced, we've all seen and we all have. Do you think that there's any aspect of communication, communication culture that can be considered universal when we're working, not just when we're working as speech therapists, just generally, is there any aspect that we can say that this is um, sorry, a nucleus thing about communication that we all share? Compassion. Mm -hmm. I think is universal. It wears different faces, it speaks different languages, but as human beings, I think we all respond very well to compassion and we know what compassion is. Mm -hmm. Lack of fear, don't be afraid of something just because it's different. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's inherently threatening or scary or it's going to hurt you somehow. Mm -hmm. Respect comes to mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Elizabeth, I just wanted to ask you a question. Because um, sure. I was thinking when um, Ilya was uh, talking about, um, I guess, EAL families, and um, I guess you could call it the term bad English, I guess, mm -hmm. so talking with an accent and the um, the perceptions that people might have when, when someone speaks with an accent or um, not maybe not speaking grammatically correct. Um, so I was just thinking um, if you could, um, I don't know, maybe you have a better idea than me of um, how standard English came about and, and why is it that we, we think that if you don't speak English grammatically then you're not clever enough or you don't know what you're talking about or so you're not understanding um, the other person or you're not capable of understanding that um, conversation. Um, and the effort is not put in as much. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different questions embedded in what you're saying. One of them is this fear of otherness. So if somebody's speech marks them as having a different, distinct background that you can really hear as distinct, that they come from a different tongue, it's these kind of yellow lights start going off maybe, and it becomes a way to judge somebody. Uh, so many people are really reluctant to judge somebody based on visible cues, like what they look like, uh, what color they are, you know, all these different things, the way they dress or whatever. So the language becomes a substitute and it's, it's pretty much wide open. We don't know that much about linguistic discrimination yet, but it's part of the same package of other forms of discrimination because as you said earlier here, language is part and parcel of who we are. It reflects everything that we have from our background, the choices that we've made, where we've lived our lives, what kind of social groups we orient toward. So when somebody is marked as other through their speech, it becomes, it, it's amazing to me that it's still so socially acceptable for people who wouldn't be caught dead commenting on the way somebody dresses or their skin color, etc. but they'll, per they're perfectly willing to put you down for your grammar. It's the same thing. There's no difference. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And I mean, and I, I and I wonder if um, the weight of verbal versus nonverbal language within that, so thinking of, um, I, was, I was thinking about um, the different tones that people use, um, even the different volume and um, I was talking to my siblings about it over the weekend while I was preparing for the um, for the podcast and they were saying yeah when dad speaks he sounds like he's arguing with someone all the time and I think <laughs> when people hear that they just this like whoa like calm down uh, but that's just the way that he speaks that's just the way that he yeah. expresses himself with like it's so funny it was, I used to have a very good friend who was bilingual in Chinese and English and um 
sometimes when she was talking to her, we used to work together and she would start talking to her sister on the phone in Chinese and she would hang up and I would always say, are you okay? What were you fighting about? She'd say, we weren't fighting. We were just talking. Oh, it sounded so violent somehow. Yeah. The way they spoke to each other, this kind of communication style. All really interesting, and and I, I was actually thinking of um, another thing I, I was thinking about was um, the use of like exaggerated language and sayings, and uh, because this is something that I was working, that I work with children quite a lot in terms of um, um, like idioms and and what they mean and inference and things like that, and I I was just thinking, well, who who's going to teach them? The idioms and the things in their language I don't I don't I mean I would love to include it in the sessions but I don't know their language I don't know the culture I don't know the sayings um so I was tr trying to think of of ways that we can incorporate that within speech therapy as well if that was a target um I mean in Algeria there's so many sayings um and I think a lot of the times when I used to go to Algeria people I never used to I used to miss um, the point to the conversation sometimes because I don't necessarily understand the sayings um, um, you know that they speak so um, yeah it would be interesting to, to hear everyone's thoughts on that as well. I think that's really interesting yeah um, and if you didn't get British idioms here it's like you've got an issue with pragmatics and stuff like <laughs> it's, it's like it just made me think that we are we our goal as speech therapists is to make good British communicators when we're working in the UK mm -hmm. like we're churning yeah. out people who are able to function well and communicate well within the UK context that's it and like we're not really really looking at you know speech and language and the identity and the culture and all of that but we're looking at how can we make functional British communicators well can I can I can I disagree with you because my career has been trying to make home language speakers yeah and actually even when children have become people say oh they're dominant in English now it's too late and so it's not too late you know if you speak home language then they will acquire home language you know it's just because they've had a delayed start or a speech and language problems intervened in the early stages and I find it really interesting that people um, and I'm not picking on anyone here but I think everyone says EAL speakers. Well, no, I call people Pakistani her heritage language speakers or home language speakers or bilingual speakers because you don't hear people say, oh, he's Welsh as an additional language speaker yeah. or he's Spanish as an additional point. language speaker. Yeah. It's always EAL. You know, English has done a great job of selling itself as the default and we just <laughs> lap it up in our language. Yeah. So I think it's really important that we, we recognize that the, the children are potentially bilingual when they're home language speakers you know they haven't acquired english yet until they've gone through the school system and that as speech and language therapists we should be equipping children and young people to operate in their social worlds and children of any age spend more time at home and with their communities than they do in school so by teaching them just english we're teaching them a tiny proportion of an ability to live their lives. And if you think of mental health outcomes, if you think of identity, uh, social and community supports, these are far more important than understanding math terminology. So Exactly. Yeah. That's why I envision it to be. <laughs> also, I'm saying EAL because I feel like I've just been looking at so many EHCP reports this week. <laughs> I need to be the first one to be like, don't use all this stupid terminology. <laughs> One thing that occurs to me in this discussion that we're having now is that it seems like we're in great, we're indoctrinated somehow to think that we have to choose. You know, that if you want to be a good British citizen, let's say, or if you want to be a good American or whatever, a good Finn, whatever it is, you have to choose one or the other. You have to speak English, you have to orient towards the norms of these mainstream, privileged people. I will stop with the adjectives there. But we don't have to choose. You know, I sometimes bring up the example of there's 12 months in a year. We don't say that one month is good and one month is bad. They're just different months. And they can go, it's just an example. It could be anything. But with language, with culture, why is it that we've been we've been convinced to think that you have to choose one or the other and if you're not you're just not playing according to the rules of mainstream society why can't you do both simultaneously or even a few simultaneously 
Absolutely, Elizabeth. And I say when I teach bilingualism to students, I say, you know, who's bilingual? And I go, great, put your hands down. Then I say, who's monolingual and only speaks English? And I go, just remember that you're a bunch of freaks because yeah. if the an alien the world. down and wanted a typical human, they would not pick some yeah. strange monolingual speaker. You know, it's, it's part of human makeup to be bilingual. And you know, who are we, the rich, weird monolingual people living on little islands and uh, in America to say, you lot are all wrong when they're in the majority, you know? So mm -hmm. I just think it's, it's the wrong way around and it's completely to do with privilege. Oh yes. And there's such a double standard, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I worked with the most excellent interpreter, award-winning, wonderfully intelligent woman who should have gone to university because she was far better at linguistics than I ever could dream to be. And she, um, she uh, learnt Mirpri as her mother tongue, as her home language from her family. She learnt Punjabi from her neighbours, which was handy because she married a man who spoke Punjabi. And she learnt Urdu at um, the local college. And people went, well, of course you can speak Urdu. And I said, well, you know, if she'd have learnt French yeah. at the local college, everyone would go, how marvellous to speak French. But because she had, you know, that special skin that means that you have this magic bilingual ability. Oh, that's a different kind of bilingual. It's a different kind of bilingual. <laughs> it's it's different. You know, so easy and, and no effort yeah. at yeah. all. So when we're talking about Princess Charlotte. That's 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 you know the important <laughs> bilingualism. Yeah. yeah, and I think that you know me hearing that a family or a child speaks Arabic like that that gets annoys me a lot. I'm like, which Arabic does he speak? Mm. <laughs> like that gives me no information. Like I speak a form of Arabic, but I won't be able to communicate as well as someone from Syria than if I was to communicate with someone from North Africa. And again, it's for example you could bring an interpreter you can bring an arabic speaking interpreter it doesn't mean that the session is going to be um as successful because mm -hmm. they're not actually speaking the same language well they sort of are but they're not <laughs> and it's really hard to explain <laughs> but it's it's one of those things it's a really good point because when we audited our caseload we looked at the language that people reported versus the language they actually spoke when we got them in clinic because mm -hmm. we did have people who spoke all three Pakistani heritage languages. Now, Mirpuri has no written form and is spoken by people who live in more rural areas who tend to be poorer. And Urdu, oh, everyone wants to speak Urdu because you work in government or you're a doctor yeah. or you're a politician. So people told stupid white people who didn't know any better because they'd never heard of Mirpuri, oh, I speak Urdu because people went, oh, Urdu, great. And they would leave them alone then. <laughs> uh, and then of course you'd book an Urdu interpreter and, and they couldn't understand yeah. each other yeah. and it often gets reported as a, a slang or a dialect but what people are basically saying is I don't want you to know that I speak a low status language that is associated with being poor and I even get this with with dialects you know people I've had students say to me you know I you can't be a speech therapist because you've got a northern accent so if it works with accents imagine what it's like with languages i think you know that the whole privilege is there laid out in in how people respond to the language labels that they use definitely yeah and marianne it'll be interesting to see in qatar are most of the children that you work with then bilingual do, do you give therapy in english or how, how does it work um, so it depends. So a lot of the kids do speak English and Arabic, but like obviously depending on where they're from, that dialect of Arabic. Um, but when they're quite young, um, it's nice to get the parents involved uh, with the therapy and to demonstrate what they need to do. And it, it's been quite handy, really. I've learned a little bit of Arabic, like different, uh, like the Qatari dialect of Arabic um and it's been useful on just that population and no one else <laughs> um but you know it's it it depends basically but i i've had a lot of interpreters but i've also had a lot of kids that speak english as well because there's a huge expat population here expats completely outnumber the indigenous population so english is kind of the mainstream language which is funny because it's not what you would expect. But I wanted to pick up on um, what Sean was saying about accents. Um, so 
I didn't, well, I wasn't born in the UK. I came to the UK when I was four from Holland. And I think I was always going to be a speech therapist because I was always aware of how different people speak. And I think from a young age, I was exposed to Harry Potter. So you had the Hermione Grangers of the world. <laughs> and you had the Pat Slaters from EastEnders. So I don't know if you're familiar with EastEnders, um, Elizabeth, but it's a soap opera and Cat Slater is a force to be reckoned with. Um, and, you know, I had a choice of what, how, what I wanted to sound like. Mm. And I think I modelled myself after the very posh Hermione Granger. And I speak like this and my older sister speaks like this, but my twin sister doesn't. She sounds oh, how interesting. <laughs> Can I do a case study of your family? This is amazing. <laughs> So my twin sounds the way that she should sound, which is like a girl from East End, the East End of London, oh. which is what I am. Wow. Um, and I know from a young age that I made that association between this accent, which I'm not putting on now because it's the way that I just speak, but this accent and intelligence and respect. And I was very young when I made that connection. I was That's like six or seven years old. Kids are so um, smart. So, so smart. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so interesting. Amazing. Um, firstly, I just want to say that I might re-enroll on the course just so I can attend your bilingualism module, Sean, because <laughs> I just wish I was in that class. It sounds great and everything you talk about. And the way that I can imagine your therapy room being, it just sounds dreamy. <laughs> Um, I'm just going to ask uh, a sort of final question to round up um, and that's sort of how does this all relate to us as speech therapists how um, where do we go from here so we know that it's so complex so complex and it's really overwhelming um, and so where do we begin in making sure that we are considering um, the complexity of the people that we coming have coming in and out of our therapy rooms I think you can get it to work and I think it takes a lot of effort and a lot of practice and a lot of cultural humility and and really mm. understanding that your culture is not the most important for this client and uh, I'll tell you a little story of when I was working in a language unit I do all my treatment in home language so I worked alongside an interpreter and I now have worked in um, Pakistan heritage language is so long that I know really simple sentences. So parents often start speaking to me and I go, no, I can't, I can say the lady's <laughs> kicking a ball, okay? I can't say anything more. Um, but I was working with a little boy for several years and I spoke uh, Mirpuri to him, which is a Pakistani heritage language. And he did really well. And of course, as he increased in confidence in home language, he then went on to just acquire English from his classroom. So he, you know, he, he resolved really well and he had developmental language disorder, but eventually he, he overcame it with, with our intensive help. But I had um, a new speech therapist start with me and he turned to her and started speaking Mirpuri to her. And he associated speech therapy with home language. So we had become an extension of his community in the, if you were doing talking practice, you did it in home language. And his mum was delighted because he could talk to his extended family. And I was so pleased because I went, I'm sorry, she doesn't speak your language anyway. That's a success story right there. Amazing. <laughs> I was so annoyed. So you can turn it round. You can turn it round and show children that their language is really valuable and precious. Because me, as a really privileged white guy you know if they can see that I value their language then you know and, and actually speech therapists shouldn't be just doing this on a client level I spent time going and and so did my colleagues going to uh, local community radio talking about speech therapy in uh, with with interpreters so that we could um, explain speech therapy to people who might not really understand it and also um, really explaining to people why we want their children to speak home language. So I remember a, a dad saying, well, why on earth do you want my child to speak home language? And I went, well, what did you do today? And he said, well, I've been to the community center, I've been to the market. And I said, and how many languages did you use? He went, oh, a bit of English, 
bit of Urdu, a bit of um, Saleti. And I was like, do you want your little boy to do that? And it, well, yeah. And I said, that's the reason. <laughs> so he can live his life in the same way that you can. And I think we really need to sell the advantages of multilingualism and multiculturalism because they are huge. Yeah. Uh, and people are massively impoverished by being monolingual and monocultural uh, as a result. I think I'm going to start... Um doing Arabic therapy with some of my, <laughs> <laughs> of my children. <laughs> yeah. So like, I have some North Africans on my caseload and I start speaking to them in uh, Algerian. <laughs> they, they, they're so surprised when I do that. They're like, oh, sweet, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> I feel like I don't trust my bilingualism enough to do it in therapy. Does that make sense? I feel like it's yeah. quite broken, the languages I speak. Oh, mine are much worse. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because I feel really like the thought of me going into a therapy room and speaking to a student in, I don't know, Swahili or Arabic or something, I feel really like, nervous thinking about it. <laughs> but I think, again, that's going back to like our own. Yeah. Like, we're not used to speaking. I'm not used to speaking to Aldrin at work. So, when I even when I do it with parents, it feels really odd. Yeah. I feel like I should be speaking in English. It's professional pragmatics and you need to get over it. I love that. Yeah. Because you feel like you're representing the institution and that there's these expectations. But yeah, uh, yeah we lead by example and if you value that. And I think and with Ilya also just owning whatever form of bilingualism you have, that if you, um, I'm not in your field, but just my opinion happens to be that if you kind of radiate shame about the way you speak your own languages, that's what you instill on the children that you work with. And you don't want to do that. Own it. Be proud. Yeah, absolutely. Never consider moving to the speech therapy profession. We've all got open up. <laughs> <laughs> Easier said than done, right? <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, so I'm just conscious of the time. Um, so I'm just going to round up now. Mm -hmm. um, but thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. It's been so, so interesting. Honestly, I think one of the most interesting conversations we've had on SLT time. Um, we've explored a range of topics um, around communication, culture, identity, um, you know, the makeup of our experiences and how that impacts our interactions and also looked at how to put that into clinical practice and um, I think there are we've everybody's made some really key points um, to take from today's episode so thanks again. Could I just say what a, a tremendous joy and pleasure it is and an honour I feel really privileged to be invited onto this so thank you so much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it very much and I've learned so much from you thank you so much. Thank you guys. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. It's been great. Our next episode will be on um, youth offending and, and speech therapist's role in those in those settings um, particularly with young people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds so that's going to be super interesting um, definitely listen in and as usual if you've got any uh, comments questions um, about today's episode tweet us um, we love to engage in those discussions yeah. online um, so thanks for listening be sure to follow our twitter and our instagram slt times at slt times slt time to keep up to date with new re episode releases and that's the SLT for today.